Democratic presidential candidates this cycle are talking about LGBTQ plus issues in a way that would almost be unimaginable 10 years ago. Welcome to Cole College and the LGBTQ presidential forum. During this September event, Senator Elizabeth Warren used her opening statement to read a list of the names of all the black trans women who had been killed in 2019. Michelle Tamika Washington, Paris Cameron, it's a stark contrast from even 10 years ago, when mention of LGBTQ plus rights were few and far between on the presidential campaign trail. Now, in the 2020 race, candidates are answering to LGBTQ plus communities, many of whom have long felt ignored by the political process. I'm Kate Payne. I'm Clay Masters. From the newsroom of Iowa Public Radio, this is Caucus Land. In 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down the decision that legalized same-sex marriage nationwide. Barack Obama was president then, but back in 2004, when he was running for U.S. Senate, he had a very different message. I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. When he ran for president in 2008, he was still opposed to same-sex marriage, but said he was in favor of civil unions. Fast forward to this race, and the legal and social standing of LGBTQ plus Americans has been fundamentally transformed. This has been an issue in our nation's history, this issue of equality, this issue of justice. We should have no second-class citizens. No matter who you love, you should be able to do what you want and achieve things in the United States of America. We'll talk about how candidates are addressing the civil rights of LGBTQ plus people with Iowa Public Radio's Caitlin Harrop. Plus, the debate over whether Iowa is diverse enough to be first in the nation. Caucus Land is sponsored by Cornell College and by Gravitate Coworking, providing flexible workspace for freelancers, remote workers, teams, or anyone sending emails from a couch or a coffee shop, including those in Iowa for the caucuses. With premier co-working spaces in downtown Des Moines and Historic Valley Junction, learn more at gravitatecoworking.com. This is Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. Back in 2008, Barack Obama appeared on TV in front of 2,800 evangelical Christians. He told Pastor Rick Warren that marriage is the union between a man and a woman. I am not somebody who promotes same-sex marriage, but I do believe in civil unions. I do believe that we should not, uh, th that for a gay partners to want to visit each other in a hospital, mm -hmm. for the state to say, you know what, that's all right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think in any way inhibits my core beliefs about what marriage are. Now during the 2020 cycle, same-sex marriage is the law of the land, and presidential candidates are being asked very different questions on LGBTQ plus civil rights. What are some things that you would do to help protect and uplift the queer and trans community, knowing that there is so much damage that yes. has been done historically to our communities? This was the first question that South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg got at a town hall in Grinnell, Iowa in early December. Buttigieg is gay and married his husband Chaston in 2018. I worry sometimes there's a sense out there that because marriage equality happened, everything's fine for everybody in the LGBTQ plus community. And while I'm very thankful for marriage equality, and thank you Iowa, by the way, for helping pave the way and show what can be done in the Midwest on that. 
Buttigieg is referring there to the 2009 Iowa Supreme Court ruling that paved the way for same-sex marriage in the state. But we've got a long way to go when we look at the policy war on trans Americans. When you look at, in particular, violence against black trans women, we so see what we are up against. And there are two levels of how we've got to deal with this. Just like just about everything, I see two levels. The policy level and then something a little, a little higher. Here to talk about how the conversation has changed this cycle and how candidates are addressing LGBTQ plus rights on the trail is Iowa Public Radio producer Caitlin Harrop. Caitlin, let's just start by saying what LGBTQ plus stands for. LGBTQ plus stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, and the plus is meant to represent additional sexual and gender identities. And I mean, this is a, a very diverse community that we're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's something I've continually heard as I followed this issue in the 2020 race. And to learn a little more, I talked with Andrew Flores. He's a visiting scholar at the Williams Institute in the UCLA School of Law and an assistant professor in the School of Public Affairs at American University campaigns tend to think about voters in distinct blocks um, and that they tend to approach the LGBTQ vote and voting block as a singular block, right? At the same time, it's an incredibly diverse group of people. Uh, Population data suggests that LGBTQ people come across a variety of economic strata, uh, are racially and ethnically uh, diverse, uh, live in rural and urban communities. And so there's this great amount of diversity uh, uh, among LGBTQ people. So LGBTQ plus communities bring in a lot of different voices and perspectives. And it's important to remember that obviously, just like with any voters, every LGBTQ plus person has a different lived experience. For example, it's reasonable to say that the reality of a white cisgendered bi man in California is different from the lived experience of a trans woman of color in the South. And just as is the case for anyone, these differences are reflected in what people care about when it comes to voting. But with that said, there is research to back up certain trends. For instance, LGBTQ plus voters are far more likely to identify as politically progressive and vote Democrat than non-LGBTQ plus voters. Okay, so we have some context, not a homogenous group. I want to go back to that clip we heard from Obama when he was running for president in 2008. Caitlin, that sort of language is unheard of in the Democratic field now. Absolutely. For Democrats in this cycle, it's really not as much a question of if you're an LGBTQ plus ally, but how strong of a plan you have to address the concerns of LGBTQ plus communities. So we've had two LGBTQ plus specific forums and town halls in the race so far. First, there was the LGBTQ plus presidential forum in Cedar Rapids, which was sponsored by the Cedar Rapids Gazette, The Advocate, GLAAD, and One Iowa back in September. Then a few weeks later, CNN and the Human Rights Campaign had a town hall, which lasted several hours. And in addition to those sort of public events, we're also seeing candidates appearing at LGBTQ plus pride events across the country. Campaigns are often kind of coming out in groups to join in parades and other events. And we even saw candidates like Kirsten Gillibrand earlier in the race campaigning with drag queens in Des Moines. And that just shows how the expectations here have changed and how seriously candidates are taking LGBTQ plus issues. So there are gains here, but these communities still face structural inequities, both in participating in politics and beyond. Yeah, and there's data to back this up. We know that gay men and transgender women in particular aren't paid equally. Research also shows that LGBTQ plus kids make up as much as 40 percent of the youth homeless population. 
Keenan Crow is the director of policy and advocacy for One Iowa, which works on LGBTQ issues in the state. Crow says overall, there are a lot of systematic inequities here. From a policy standpoint, I think we're seeing a lot of improvement. Um, we just still have you know, a long way to go because these are issues that have been neglected for uh, uh, decades and decades. And so um, some, some of the data actually isn't available and some of the solutions are not clear yet. And that's because those issues have been neglected for so long. So a lot of work to be done here. But when it comes to the Democratic candidates' policy plans, what do those look like? Well, first of all, just about every candidate has addressed LGBTQ plus issues in their policy plans in one way or another. But the real division comes in who has a standalone LGBTQ plus specific policy plan and which candidates don't. A lot of those candidates have just rolled their policies into other plans, such as addressing civil rights or health care plans. But everyone is addressing the issue in one way or another. And you definitely see some common threads in these plans. So basically, all of the candidates are speaking out on these issues. Some have longer standalone plans than others, but we should say lengthy plans on websites aren't everything. Candidates like Senators Cory Booker, Bernie Sanders, and Amy Klobuchar have plans that are shorter in length or have built a reputation on these issues in other ways, like their voting records. That's right. So going back to these plans then, what do they generally agree on? Well, just about every candidate has endorsed the Equality Act, which aims to add explicit non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ plus people and amend civil rights laws to include sexual orientation and gender identity as protected characteristics. You also see most candidates aiming to reinstate certain LGBTQ plus protections made under the Obama administration that have since been rolled back by the Trump administration. And so who is setting themselves apart in this policy space? By and large, Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren have come out with the most comprehensive written plans addressing LGBTQ plus issues, and these plans have a lot of crossover. So some of the similarities we're seeing is the goal of adding a non-binary gender marker to passport programs, the goal of ending a blanket ban on blood donation from people including gay and bisexual men, both plans want to end conversion therapy, and both plans address uh, rolling back the transgender military ban that was instituted by the Trump administration. Okay, seeing some crossover, but what are the differences between these two plans? So Pete Buttigieg has an 18-page plan, and a couple of the different things he lists are banning medically unnecessary genital surgeries on intersex infants and children. Elizabeth Warren also addresses this, as do many other candidates, but his language is a little more specific. He also would permit states to develop safe injection facilities. On the other hand, Elizabeth Warren, who has a 21-page plan, aims to make LGBTQ plus non-discrimination a condition of federal grants, make federal family programs like paid family leave cover chosen family for LGBTQ plus Americans, and she wants to establish a national resource center on LGBT aging. Again, these are pretty minute differences, and overall many of the major themes of these plans are similar, as are they with many of the other candidates' plans and things they've said in life forums and other spaces. And so as far as some of the veteran candidates in this race, you know, some of them have been in politics for decades. How are their records on LGBTQ plus issues holding up? One candidate you hear about this a lot with is Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, Biden attended both the LGBTQ plus forum in Cedar Rapids and CNN's LGBTQ plus town hall. He prides himself on coming out in support of same-sex marriage before President Barack Obama. 
although he also voted for the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996, which advocated against same-sex marriage. We also hear this question coming up a lot with Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, Sanders has a really long history of supporting LGBTQ plus rights going back to the 70s. He's also received some flack for not showing up to either of the LGBTQ plus specific forums, but he continues to speak out in support of LGBTQ plus issues, and he does have a plan written out on his website. Something we hear from advocates on the trail is about their concerns over how the Trump administration has rolled back some of these LGBTQ plus protections. And they want to know where these Democratic candidates will focus on putting some of those protections back in place. Where are they focusing there? Well, both Warren and Buttigieg agree on returning to and expanding Obama-era LGBTQ plus protections that have been rolled back by the Trump administration. This includes abolishing the trans-military ban and restoring non-discrimination protections. This is also largely agreed on by other candidates as well. Among others, Cory Booker, Bernie Sanders, and Amy Klobuchar have also raised these concerns. So much has changed in society, Caitlin. I mean, you can kind of see that in the way that, as we heard earlier, Barack Obama's views have changed. Uh, Current candidates have some beliefs that are now seen as outdated. How is that playing out on the trail? Well, they're being asked to answer for it. Representative Tulsi Gabbard has had to answer for some comments she made in the past and for her work with a group called the Alliance for Traditional Marriage, who worked to pass a measure against same-sex marriage in Hawaii. In my past, I said and believed things that were wrong. And worse, they were very hurtful to people in the LGBTQ community and to their loved ones. Many years ago, I apologized for my words and more importantly, for the negative impact that they had. I sincerely repeat my apology today. It's worth noting that Gabbard's voting record has evolved on this issue. She co-sponsored the Equality Act in the House and has voted in favor of LGBTQ plus protections in recent years. Elizabeth Warren has also had to answer for comments she made in 2012, saying that she didn't think it was a good use of tax dollars to pay for gender-affirming surgery for inmates. She's since apologized and walked back this answer. So caucus goers are sifting through a lot of information here on voting records and on policy plans. But what do we know about how LGBTQ plus people will caucus and how they'll vote? Well, first of all, it's hard to know the exact number of voters who identify as LGBTQ+. This data is just fairly limited compared to measures of some other voter groups. The Williams Institute, which studies LGBTQ plus policies and politics at UCLA, estimates that almost 9 million LGBT adults are registered to vote in 2020. And an exit poll from NBC News measured that 6% of all midterm voters identified as LGBT in 2018. This is a relatively small group compared to the entire electorate, but Andrew Flores with the Williams Institute says the LGBTQ community can be influential in tight Democratic races. So it's not necessarily that you're looking at this voting voter base as uh, incredibly large, but a lot of elections, primaries and general elections, are won kind of at the margins. And so it's at those very tight moments where um, you you will see the influence and impact of LGBTQ voters. Okay, we've talked a lot about LGBTQ plus specific issues, what the candidates are putting out there as far as policy goes. 
But these likely caucus goers, I mean, they care about health care and climate change and many of the other issues that the Democrats are talking about. Right, Caitlin? Yeah, exactly. The top issues for many LGBTQ plus voters are the same top policy issues we're seeing overall. And I talked about this with Keenan Crow from One Iowa. Obviously, there are things like um, banning conversion therapy, uh, making sure that the epidemic of violence against uh, transgender people, specifically transgender women of color, is addressed. Um, Looking at the impacts of religious exemption legislation and um, how that's been implemented historically. Uh, But there are also stuff – there's a lot of things that are going to overlap with the general public. I mean a lot of concerns that we hear on a day-to-day basis at our organization involve um, pretty mundane things, you know, getting health care, making sure that you uh, have a job and that you can provide for your family, stuff that basically everyone in America is concerned about all the time. And as we've talked about, LGBTQ plus communities are not homogenous. But do we have any polling data that focuses specifically on who LGBTQ plus people are considering in 2020? We have some. It's fairly limited, but we do have one recent poll. YouGov Blue and Out Magazine released a national poll at the end of November that put Elizabeth Warren as the top-ranked candidate for likely Democratic LGBTQ plus voters. That's with 31 percent of polled voters saying they'd vote for her if they had to vote today. Sanders came in second at 18 percent. Biden was third and Pete Buttigieg pulled fourth. For what it's worth, it's just one poll. But we do know, by and large, that LGBTQ plus voters tend to swing Democratic. But candidate preference, of course, differs, as is the case with any voting blocker community. Sure. So LGBTQ plus people tend to be Democratic, but they're certainly not all Democrats. Totally. The Williams Institute at UCLA estimates that actually about 15 percent of LGBTQ plus voters are registered Republican. In fact, the Log Cabin Republicans, which describes themselves as the nation's original and largest organization representing LGBT conservatives, has endorsed President Trump for the 2020 election. And this is notable since they didn't endorse Trump back in 2016. Okay, Caitlin, let's take a few steps back here. We're seeing a historic paradigm shift with this election. LGBTQ plus issues addressed in forums, policies are being rolled out even seeing a gay presidential candidate who is surging in Iowa with Pete Buttigieg. I mean, how does this all add up on caucus night? Well, that's a good question. While the LGBTQ plus community makes up a relatively small portion of the overall electorate, their votes really matter. And 2020 candidates are taking note. All of the Democratic candidates say they support the LGBTQ plus community. And just about every candidate has addressed LGBTQ plus concerns to some extent in their campaign. The real differences can be seen in the extent to which candidates are taking on these concerns, like how fleshed out their written plans are, and by looking at which candidates have made the most effort to communicate with LGBTQ plus voters directly. So it's yet to be seen how this all will play out on caucus night in February. Okay, Iowa Public Radio's Caitlin Harrop, thanks so much. Thank you. Caucus Land is sponsored by Gravitate Coworking and by Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa where students get a first-in-the-nation, hands-on experience with the political process every election cycle. Explore interdisciplinary learning at cornellcollege.edu. If you're enjoying this episode of Caucus Land, find more coverage of the campaign trail by downloading the IPR app. Learn more about the candidates, read stories about their positions, and stay up to date on the race to the White House. It only takes a minute. Click the App Store on your smartphone and search for Iowa Public Radio. 
The Iowa Legislature is about to start, and so is our State House podcast. For context, depth, and a better understanding about the 2020 legislative session, subscribe to Under the Golden Dome wherever you listen to podcasts. High quality journalism is more important now than it has ever been. If you've learned something today by listening to this episode, make a contribution now at iowapublicradio.org. It's your support that makes podcasts like Caucusland possible. This is Caucusland from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Clay Masters. I'm Kate Payne. Criticism over Iowa's lack of diversity happens every four years when the caucuses are back in the national spotlight. The state is more than 90 percent white. And in November, one of the current presidential candidates called out Iowa while campaigning here. Former Housing Secretary Julian Castro brought it up in Cedar Rapids to CBS News. We can't say to black women, oh, thank you, thank you. You're the ones that are powering our victories in places like Alabama and in 2018. And then turn around and start our nominating contest in the two states that have barely any black people in them. I mean, that doesn't make sense. We can't, as a Democratic Party, continually and justifiably complain about Republicans who suppress the votes of people of color and then turn around and start our nominating contests in two states that, even though they take their roles seriously, hardly have any people of color. That's just the truth. It wasn't a one-time thing for Castro. He's been leaning into this argument. Here's an ad he started running in December in Iowa. It's time for the Democratic Party to change the way that we do our presidential nominating process. And I've said very bluntly that it's time for a state other than Iowa to go first so that our nominating process actually reflects the diversity of our country or of our party. Castro also hosted a forum about it in Des Moines. Iowa Public Radio's Grant Gerlock was there. He's with us now. Grant, what were some of your key takeaways from that forum? Well, the first was that he may be getting more attention for this now than when he first brought the issue up in November. I mean, he definitely got headlines back then because you don't often see a candidate going around asking for support while also telling those voters they should move back in line when it comes to choosing a nominee. But it came back in a bigger way when Kamala Harris, the senator from California, dropped out of the race. Harris was a popular candidate, even though her polling had dropped off a bit. And she was the only black woman in the field of candidates. And that led a lot of people to ask why she should drop out when other candidates are sort of propping up their campaigns with their personal wealth. And we should say the Democratic Party prides itself on being this big tent party on on valuing diversity and equality, working towards racial justice. And it's not just Castro that is saying that this process is not living up to those ideals. We've heard from Democrats here in Iowa, too, uh, that say that this process just isn't working for people of color. Holly Christine Brown chairs the Asian Pacific Islander Caucus of the Iowa Democratic Party, and she's one of these Democrats that says she wants the state to give up the caucuses. I absolutely think that Iowa should not be first. (laughs) Um, There is no reason for Iowa to be first. It it was was just our um, own insistence that we be first. We aren't representative of the country, and uh, our being first disenfranchises a lot of fellow Iowans, and it's not right. It doesn't represent our values as a country or as a party. Castro's saying basically the same thing, that 
Iowa going first is undermining the party's message. You know, Democrats are reaching out to black women, for instance, and telling them, we support your interests. We want to address your concerns. But at the same time, the party's giving priority to Iowa and New Hampshire, two predominantly white states where black women have a much smaller voice in terms of their voting power. And he says his concern isn't just based on the number of voters. He says it's also the way the caucuses are set up. He says it diminishes the voice of people of color. And we've talked about this, that unlike in a primary system, you know, the caucuses are really different. You know, caucus goers just have that one shot to go out and caucus. And it's on a weekday night in the middle of winter. Uh, It can be really hard for people to get out and be a part of that process. That's right. And another thing he brought up is that a lot of people aren't comfortable showing their support for a candidate publicly. And in the caucuses, you really have to. Yeah. I mean, you have to stand up and say, this is the candidate that I'm supporting. Yeah. You have to literally stand in their corner. And a lot of people would rather have more anonymity when they're choosing their nominee for president. Another issue he brought up is that the way the caucuses are set up, it favors candidates who have broad support across the state geographically. But a lot of the black voters in the state are concentrated in urban areas like Des Moines, and that limits their influence on the outcome of the caucuses. And the state party leaders defend Iowa here. Uh, They say Iowa is part of the early carve-out states, and together along with New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada, the primary process is representative of the country. And I mean, it it might seem counterintuitive, but Jeff Kaufman, the chairman of the Iowa Republican Party, is concerned about the future of the Democratic caucus here, just as anybody else in the Democratic Party would be. You cannot just brush off the fact that Iowa made a president, and not only a president, but the first African-American president in American history, for crying out loud. I wasn't a fan of Barack Obama, nor did I vote for him. But you know what? I'm kind of proud. That, that Iowa Democrats broke, broke a, a barrier there. And a lot of defenders of the Iowa caucuses do point to the election of Barack Obama to say, you know, even an overwhelmingly white state like Iowa can support candidates of color. Did Castro talk about that at the forum in Des Moines? Yeah, he was asked about uh, Obama winning in Iowa in 2008. And, you know, Castro ended up working for Barack Obama. And what Castro said is that Iowa was definitely a a hugely important win for Barack Obama, especially going into South Carolina. It showed that Obama had support broadly across the party. But he said, you know, that's one person. That's one campaign. Meanwhile, Iowa has never elected a black senator or representative or governor. So he says this is the exception, not the rule. He got some pushback on that. Uh, State Representative Akeo Abdul-Samad was there. He represents North Des Moines. He's a member of the Iowa Legislative Black Caucus. And he asked Castro, you know, isn't racism the problem? And how are you going to escape that by choosing another state to go first? Basically, he was saying you can't get away from issues of race and politics just by moving Iowa back in the line. So Castro made a few points in response to that. First, he said, if there are issues in other states... They don't get off the hook just because they're more diverse than Iowa. But Iowa doesn't get off the hook just because there may be problems of racism in other states. He says the whole system needs to be looked at. I don't think somebody should get elected just because they're black or Latino or just because they're white. But I think that everybody ought to have a fair shot at making the case. And right now, the way that it's structured, not only is there not a fair shot, I don't think there's a fair shot for the voters themselves. 
So what is Julian Castro proposing that the Democratic Party actually do then? Well, he's saying that after 50 years, the party should measure this tradition against what they say they stand for. Um, So after the 2020 elections, he'd like the party to put together a task force to look at all the states and rank them systematically based on what the party says it cares about. Diversity, population, urban-rural mix of residents, um, how affordable it is to campaign there, how easy it is to vote there, and just put them in order, see who comes out on top. But he says diversity should be a big part of this because if diversity doesn't matter at this point, when does it matter in politics? All right. Iowa Public Radio's Grant Gerlach, thank you. You're welcome. This episode of Caucus Land was produced by me, Kate Payne, Clay Masters, Caitlin Harrop, Grant Gerlach, and John Pemble. Our music was composed by Garrett Schmid and performed by Garrett and Aaron James. Our news director is Michael Leland, and our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. We also get help from our digital team, Lindsay Moon and Matt Searin. Subscribe to Caucus Land wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and share the show. Caucus Land is a production of Iowa Public Radio.